if you just say, I'm going to jam you into the spot where I need a person without any thought about what that person may or may not enjoy, you have a really high probability of uh, an early separation, whether that's the person being terminated from apathy or not being, not enjoying the work or being a no-show or them quitting of their own accord. And that is bad news for the company. Uh, that is expensive. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graf. Our guest on today's show is Brian Malaysia, CEO and co-founder of Talent EI, a company that produces a software platform that matches employers and job seekers. Brian says the platform enables companies to hire superior people faster and at a better price than traditional hiring methods, such as job descriptions and resumes. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graff. P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. I am very honored to have Brian Belasia, CEO and co-founder of Talent EI. Um, welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Today, we're going to talk about one of our favorite topics, the thing that so many people are concerned with, hiring. So... Brian, I think the way to start is just tell us what your company does, and then we'll. Um, I want to learn a little about you, and and then we're gonna see if we can help people in their hiring process. Good. Yeah. So what we do is we help companies to hire better people faster at a better price, typically, and we do that by improving hiring accuracy, reducing candidate waste and using data to drive continuous improvement in the hiring process. Okay. The way we think about hiring is, is in, you know, uh, I think I mentioned to you last time we talked, it's a little bit like the Toyota production system, right? So it, there's, there's a lot of waste in the system that I think people have missed. And a, a lot of companies say, oh, there's just not enough uh, good candidates in the marketplace. And oftentimes when we go and analyze those companies, we find that there in fact are a lot of applicants that they're seeing but that they're wasting a lot of their supply. And that comes in a number of different reoccurring themes uh, in terms of types of waste, right? So we see a lot of times like in manufacturing, we'll see what we call queuing waste. So we'll see a firm say, we're going to hire hundred people and maybe they have 200 people apply. And so those kind of, you know, as they apply, they make a judgment. Oh, it seems like a, a warm body who will show up on time. So I'll hire this guy and I'll put him on shift A and uh, this guy seems all right. And I got opening on shift B. I put him on shift B and what happens is they get mediocre talent uh, and they put them in different spots, oftentimes without really 
really asking the candidate where 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 they might fit within the organization, but but just kind of what the company needs as they see the candidates. What happens is a lot of times our best candidates for specific shifts or for specific pieces of equipment we miss because by the time we get to that person, we've already filled the jobs, right? Or it's taken us so long to get through the line that we've we've missed them and they've gone somewhere else. We see the queuing waste that we're always looking to address. Sometimes we see it like at bigger companies, we'll see what we call siloing waste, where maybe we have 50 job openings in a particular skill set across an organization and each job has 20 applicants applying to it, right? So each hiring manager hopes that their dream candidate is one of 20 people who have applied to their particular opening. But across the 50, we've really got a thousand candidates we could be considering and a much higher probability that, we'll, that our dream candidate is one of a thousand, right? Maybe my dream candidate is in your pool, your dream candidate is in my pool, or maybe both of them are in your pool. And so oftentimes what happens is that we have the candidates, they were within our reach and we just missed them, right? We also see things like timing issues, where maybe a candidate applies too late as we're just about to close out a shift or a role. And then because we're not really looking at those candidates broadly, we're just considering for one particular opening, uh, we might miss them. You know, maybe there's like there's an opening today. Somebody applies this afternoon. They would be great fit. And I don't even consider them for the opening that comes available next Tuesday. And then the last type of waste we're always looking at is bias. Right. And so a lot of times people think about bias from a social ill standpoint. And certainly that is the case, but in our world, we look at bias as missed opportunity, right? More candidate waste. So I have uh, a great candidate, but for some reason I have excluded them because I have some preconceived notion of what a great candidate would be for my shop, right? So we have we have a customer who talks about how they only hire people with manufacturing background because they're a manufacturer, right? And then what they've done is they've missed out on a huge pool of candidates who keep applying to these jobs because they have that bias that they, they only want to hire somebody from manufacturing and they don't consider somebody from a different background. And what's happened there is they haven't really taken the time to understand the nature of the work that they're really trying to fill. We're using this kind of broad brush to just say, this is a manufacturing job. So people with a manufacturing background are great for it. And in the process, again, waste tremendous supply of viable candidates. Have you advised this guy and are you trying to help him change his we are so for this particular customer we, we see that the type of manufacturing that they do is um is really fast paced it's physically demanding at this plant and then every order that comes by what has to be assembled changes right so same products but lots of different features i think there's like something like six thousand possible combinations so you got to read the order and then decide which part you're applying to the the product on your station line and so what we were showing them is that some people who had a manufacturing background did not expect the work to look like that, right? Because in their mind, manufacturing may have been sitting on a stool pushing a button. It may have been physically demanding, but the same task over and over again. It might not have been physically demanding, but the same task over and over again, right? So there's, it, it was the components of the work that were important. And and they had said, well, we, we did an analysis and, you know, we didn't have any success, particularly from fast food, or we didn't have any success from all these different industries. And we said, well, hold on. It's not a particular industry, right? So if I were a fast food worker working a drive through line, right, I, I just turned 18, I'm used to having to quickly fill orders, right? I've got a, in a drive through you typically have about an 18 to 25 second tack time, right? So that that is in line with, you know, this type of manufacturing and also, the orders that pop up are different every time. So I have to assemble different things. I said, the difference there is that the work is not physically demanding. You're on your feet, but you know, it's not, you know, not putting shoulders into 
you know, into it, or you're kind of really a lot of, you know, wrist, wrist or grip strength. But I said, but if we understand the components of the work, we can have a, a far better understanding of not only who might be able to accomplish the job we have at hand, but also who might like that kind of work, right? That's, that's why we see high turnover. Very interesting. Are, are you familiar with the book Range? I am not familiar with that book. I'm trying to think. I can't remember what, who it's by. And the same guy who wrote this book wrote a book called The Sports Gene, which is it's all about how people often go from one job to another. And by being in one job, it really helps them excel at a different job because they come in with slightly different background, slightly well-rounded, but it, it's just like what you said. They have reflexes or something from one job and it makes them cross-train. Same thing with sports. Like you have these Olympians that, you know, they were doing like a summer game and then they wanted to be in the Olympics and they went to a winter Olympic sport and they used what they knew from one thing. To me, it sounds a lot like that. Yeah, makes sense. You're almost a victim if you come in thinking you know too much, then you can... Yeah, I mean, we we use these job descriptions to describe the work, and where it's part selling, and and it, and and oftentimes we don't do a good job of capturing the essence of the work, right? Like we're not, you know, we we say it's a manufacturing job. We need, you know, we we're it's an exciting company, and it's a stable company, or it's a high growth company. Or there's lots of opportunities for growth and development, but we miss some of the key parts of like, what is the work, right? I, I think of like this, this one particular job that I'm, I'm referencing here in terms of this manufacturing, uh, it's physically demanding and mentally taxing. And I think about my 18 year old self, you know, who is playing high school football. And I think, oh my God, I, I had a job at a factory uh, between high school and college where I was a janitor, right? And, and uh, I couldn't imagine a worse fit because uh, I have a germ phobia, but I was a janitor, right? Because it was the only thing that they had. <laughs> Is the only thing that they had available for that summer. And I was supposed to be a test driver, but my high school got out too late. So I couldn't, couldn't be a test driver. So I was a janitor and I made good money, but, um, but I, I wasn't the right fit for that job. Right. And then I think about this, this other company that we're, I'm referencing here and this work is physically demanding, mentally taxing. And I think, God, if I was between high school and college, this would have been amazing. Like, you know, when I was back in the, back in my prime, when I was like in good shape, I would have really enjoyed this, right. I'm, I had a, a job in the fall sometimes where I would I would help bale hay, you know, and and I thought like, oh, that was so much fun. And I don't think the current version of me would think that that was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of fun when you know I was in high school. And it was because I enjoyed that kind of work. I liked, I liked the physical exertion. I liked the mental, you know, kind of things that were mentally taxing while physically, you know, re requiring physical exertion. I think, you know, that's why we end up with high turnover rates, right? We're we're oftentimes kind of dehumanizing the work, right? We're thinking about it from the company's perspective, but not the candidate's perspective. And the miss there is that you could say, I have this work to do. And, and if you want a job, I want you to do this, right? But there's tremendous cost in training, right? Like, like one, one of our clients, it, it takes them 120 hours to train up a person, right? And in the meantime, you're paying the trainer and the, and the employee, right? They're the trainee. Right. And, and so if you just say, I'm going to jam you into the spot where I need a person without any thought about what that person may or may not enjoy, you have a really high probability of uh, an early separation, whether that's the person being terminated from apathy or not, being, not enjoying the work or being a no-show or them quitting of their own accord. And that is bad news for the company. 
uh, that is expensive. Yes. That is tremendously expensive. So we really help to think through not just what the company needs, but also what the candidate needs. Very interesting. Okay. So the concept is great. I want a little bit better picture, though, of, of what's going on. How does this whole thing work? What are you guys selling? Yeah, so we have a we have a SaaS based platform. So it's a software platform that's hosted, and um, it's a little bit of software and a little bit of consulting. So what we do is we come in and we uh, do two things. One, the first thing we do is when we, we think about a job, um, what we realized early on was that it was critical to understand really again as we talked about here is what's the what's the real nature of that work, right? So what what is what is that job experience day to day? What are the expectations on a successful candidate day to day? And so the first thing we did is, is our mentality was to think about a job as an RFP, right? So like every job that goes out, what is it that you need accomplished? And so what we did is we built a system that dynamically profiles, uh, well, it, it profiles jobs. It asks, it surveys hiring managers to ask them, what is it that you are looking for? You know, what is it that you need in this particular role, right? So let's say it's a, a software developer role. You know, we might say, well, I'm looking, you know, historically, we'd say, I'm looking for somebody with five years of Java development. And for us, that's nice. You know, that, that gives us like a broad sense. But, but just knowing that you have that skill and you have that amount of experience doesn't really tell us who's the best fit for the job. We want to start asking questions. And I remember just said, how much of this job is going to be focused on, you know, doing bug fixes, working with customers to find, you know, to, to understand their requirements, doing budget and quality and, and speed trade-offs with customers? Are you going to be doing code reviews, you're going to be designing new features, right? Tell us what the day-to-day experience and the need of that job is, right? Or in a manufacturing plant, sometimes we'll actually help the plant where we won't be surveying the individual hiring managers, but we'll, we'll look at the individual roles. So we'll have people come in and they'll say, you know, what is it to work on a hopper line? And like, what is the day-to-day experience and expectation versus working on a Q, you know, a quality assurance line or a conveyor line, right? Because they both might... Uh, present as being, you know, line worker jobs, but in reality, you know, they're very, very different, right? One person's, you know, reading instructions and, and putting in recipes together and lifting bags and mixing to consistency. And the other person is sitting on a stool, blurring their eyes as, you know, maybe pie crusts are coming down the line to try to see if there's any defect that their, that their brain picks up on. And so the first most critical piece of this is to truly understand the job. And again, so in kind of discrete hiring where you're hiring one off, the system will survey the hiring manager dynamically to figure out exactly what it is you're looking for. Give me a few examples of questions you'd ask them. Uh, let's say a manufacturing job would say, um, you know, is this can't, you know, is the successful candidate in this job expected to learn things on their own and to be, you know, kind of a self-starter? Are they going to be receiving continuous coaching and instruction? That is a really interesting question. And, and that to us has been really important in some of these facilities where we've had issues where, you know, in some facilities you are expected to learn on your own, right? And, and some people thrive in that environment. They want to be left alone. They want to learn on their own. In other environments, there's continuous coaching and mentoring and kind of oversight to ensure that we maintain quality. And to the right person, that is really helpful and encouraging. And to the wrong fit for that job, that can be grating and irritating those are the kinds of things that we're really looking at. What is the experience of the job? What do you do, though, if, uh, say, you get a supervisor who's a total micromanager, who has a total ego, and they're going to make life living hell for everybody? You basically just have to go with whomever it is and then just kind of 
only recommend candidates that you think are real resilient against some people like that? That's a good question. So a couple of things that we do. So that's that, you know, to kind of the, the top of the show we talked about, just reduce candidate waste, improve hiring accuracy, and then use data to drive continuous improvement. And that's the stuff we see in the data. So if we see a shorter tenure within a certain supervisor or what we'll do, oftentimes is we'll, we'll take in and uh, we'll break candidates into two buckets, a good bucket and a bad bucket, right? So, you know, if Noah and Robert and Sue and Karen and Bob all you know, made it to their 90 day mark and Brian and Joe and, you know, Ellen did not, we'll kind of break those two apart, right? And we'll say, okay, what are the differences, if any, between these two candidate groups? And maybe we'll find that it's the supervisor, or maybe we'll find it's the supervisor and a particular, you know, characteristic that we were seeing in these profiles. So we can then say, okay, well, if Ralph is hiring, then we are going to weight certain conditions because they end up resulting in greater success. And, you know, it, it might seem like a, a overly analytical approach to hiring, but this, this is, these are big dollars, right? This is one of the most important pieces of a business is to get the right people in the right spots and to reduce turnover because it's costly to quality. It's, it's, it prevents us from output. And so we really spend a lot of time in the data looking to say, what, what are those variances? Where, why is it that this group isn't isn't lasting as long as we would expect, right? And so, you know, another good example of this is that we're, uh, we look at commute times, right? And we say, okay, like, you know, the way we kind of think of this is, is that when we're lining up candidates for a particular opening, think of it as kind of like the NFL draft, right? So what we do is we put them in draft order and we say, okay, we have 300 applicants who applied. We're going to profile and score them. So we have a pool of, of candidates that we're continuously maintaining, and we want to be proactive. So before I need to hire, I maintain this pool of candidates so that if I show up to Noah in a Manning meeting and Noah says, I need seven people on shift one, the system kicks out and says, okay, of the people we've profiled, here are the best fits for shift one, right? And the way that we do that is organizing these candidates by alignment to shifts or to roles. And it's a probability game. What we say is, it's not to say you won't occasionally get a Ryan Leaf in round one, right? You can sometimes have a person who's just not a great fit, but more often than not, your round, your, your top, you know, your kind of first round picks are going to work out. And it's not to say that you couldn't get a Tom Brady in round six, but again, more often than not, you are not going to get a Tom Brady in round six, right? And and you'd never trade your first round picks for six round picks, right? And so that's the way we think about this: is to say, how how can I increase the probability? that the people we hire are going to be here for a long time and going to be productive and successful. And so again, so we, we profile the job and then we profile the candidates as they come through. And as soon as we know what it is you need on a daily, day-to-day basis or on a weekly basis, the system is kicking that out to you to say, of all the people that are currently active and profiled, here's who have the highest probability of success. And then we're continuously tracking that to say, okay, where do we need to tune that? You know, so that we're, again, we're, we're not thinking of this as one big kind of mass of humanity. Right, right. Okay, so you've questioned the supervisor, and now you're going to get the data on the applicants. So how does that work? So we're a back office uh, support for the for the company. So when a candidate applies, whether it's through Indeed or Craigslist or whatever source, the company's own website, we tie into the company. Um, where we then get the candidates, so we'll get their application or their resume, whatever that kind of application happens to look like for the company. 
And we'll always get first name, last name, email address, and typically cell phone number, right? And so then let's say, so Noah applies and we send a text and we say, great news, Noah, we've, we've reviewed your application. We're interested in learning more. We have a couple additional questions to figure out where you might fit within our company, right? Click here. So you click on that and it takes you through a, a wizard where we say based on the job, right? So if it's a, if it's a manufacturing, you know, kind of production line job, it might, you know, have a certain set of questions. If it's a, um, you know, software developer job or mechanical engineering job, we have a whole different set of questions. Right? We have 1,500 jobs and 55,000 characteristics in the system that can define those jobs. So let's say you have a production line job. We're going to say, okay, you know, we're run through a handful of questions. Say, oh, okay, do you like code? Do you like do you like being coached and 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 trained and and mentored? Do you like just doing things on your own? We build that profile of you, <clears throat> and then the second that profile is complete. Behind the scenes, we're scoring it against all the pieces of equipment, all of the shifts that we have. And oftentimes for our clients, our clients uh, have a lot of times have multiple divisions or they'll have multiple plants within a region. And so we'll then score you not just against the job or the plants you applied to, but if it's within a reasonable radius, like let's say, because as we're profiling, you will say, you know, what's your, you know, Noah, what are you comfortable commuting? You know, kind of you say, um, I'm open to a 25 minute commute. Yeah, that's a really important question because you might have a great fit and then it just doesn't work out in that way or, or everybody wants to work remotely nowadays. And Yeah, and so we figure that we, 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 we get a sense of where you're willing to work and then we'll also plot that to say, okay, based, you know, okay, if Noah's willing to work remotely, I can score him against all the remote jobs in the US, right? If Noah is only willing to work within a 15 mile commute of his house and he, and he takes a car, well, then he's available to work at these two locations. If Noah is willing to take an hour-long commute and he takes, uh, you know, mass transit, you know, these other locations light up as possibilities. So what we're doing is we're then scoring you against every piece of equipment, every shift, every location that is within those bounds to then figure out where where you fit. So they're applying for the job on the company's website, but this is going to go into your, basically your headhunting database and be used for more than just this one company. No, we only, we do, we set up, we set up private systems for companies. So this is only used for that particular company, but it might be if there's a holding company that says maybe they own a bunch of tool and die shops and a bunch of assembly plants, then we could be scored against all of those within the hold co. But yeah, we're just processing applicants on behalf of our clients. And, and again, what's happening here is when you answer the profile, not only are we thinking about where you fit with the company's needs, but simultaneously where the job or kind of how the job aligns with your own needs, right? So a good example of this is that we had a person I was looking at the data with one of my analysts the other day who they had applied and they were a good fit for the company, but the company was a poor fit for the candidate. Right for the, in, in terms of this role, right? So the candidate really liked, um, I'm trying to remember the exact characters, but I think they really liked physically demanding work that was kind of, that had a really short tack time. And the, the so they were willing to do more than the company needed, but the company needed somebody to do a, a pretty kind of very slow moving, monotonous job. So they overruled the recommendation in the system and said, well, I'm just going to hire them anyway because they're they, they can do, Noah can do what I need to have done. He's a go-getter. He could do this, right? And 48 hours later, the person had quit. And of course they had quit. 
This is boring. This is uninteresting to them, right? And for the right person, it's great work. But for the wrong fit, uh, they're, they're going to quit. And so we were just, we look at this not only in terms of what the company needs, but also what the candidates, because there is no value to the company in putting somebody in a spot where they are miserable. You are just going to drive turnover and at best, mediocre productivity. You know, what we were talking about before was you said, if people like what they do, they will do it well. I've pondered this and there's definitely something to it, but this is usually the case. This is what you found. It doesn't have to be somebody's calling. This is what we found today, right? And it's not, it can be components of a job, right? So, yeah. So like, for instance, there are people who love being garbage men and women, right? Just being, you know, just picking up the garbage, right? I don't think that they love garbage. I think that's probably a low probability that they love garbage. But I do think that there are some advantages to being a garbage person, right? You are outside all day. You are not on call. You are not working, you know, extra weekends and overtime. Uh, you have a very, you know, kind of a, a structured schedule. When you complete your task, you are done. The faster you do the task, the faster your day ends, right? You're paid well. Like, there's a whole lot of benefits to this that for the right person, you know, you're, you're, you work, you know, fairly independently in some cases and a team in other cases, but a lot of times like independently. So you can have headphones on and be listening to something. Like th those are those are a lot of perks to a job. Nobody bothers you. You could listen to a book on tape. You're outside and like, yeah, maybe garbage smells, but it doesn't bother you that much. It's like, again, is or maybe you don't have a sense of smell. Yeah. It's like, is that your is that your passion? No. But there are benefits to that job that you enjoy. And if you find the right person who cares about those things, again, higher probability that they stay there because it, it kind of overrides some of those other factors that maybe you and I wouldn't like, right? But, but that's because the, the components of this align with what we're looking for, right? It's like, so I think that's, uh, that's, that's been our hypothesis and approach. And it's, it's turned out to be, again, it's not a, it's, this is not about a, a crystal ball where I say, for sure, Noah is going to be the best employee I've ever had. What we say is high probability, Noah is going to be here over the next six months, right? High probability is going to be a strong performer. Doesn't mean 100% of the people in that bucket are going to be 100% performers. What we do is we ban these. So we say, okay, like if you're a 96% alignment to the job, maybe, maybe the turnover rate over a six month period of time is, you know, one and a half percent. If you're an 85%, you know, to 90%, maybe the turnover rate is 10%, right? So we start to band these things to say, what are, what are the risks? And it does, there's, there's no 100% guarantee. It's just about being as predictive as we can be. And again, it's about, if I get somebody who doesn't like being outside and is a chatty Kathy because they love talking to their next door neighbor, I don't know that this job as a garbage person is going to work out. It's just not the it's just the not the nature of the work. And we can argue, and we frequently do, to say, well, if I pay you enough money, you'll keep the job. And say, like, how many people do we know that have been paid well and quit jobs that they ultimately disliked? Listeners, first. I got to tell you, I'm so grateful for you guys tuning in. I know we have lots of competition out there. Freakonomics, This American Life, Joe Rogan. Also, I just want to let you know, if you have guest ideas or questions for me or Lloyd, we'd love for you to reach out. And if you want to talk about future advertising opportunities, we're very happy to talk to you anytime. Feel free to email me at noah at graphpinkert.com. 
That's N-O-A-H at G-R-A-F-F-P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. And now, back to the episode. So mainly you're going for like well enough and fit. You're not trying to give people necessarily jobs that are their purpose or calling. Yeah, it's not necessarily your calling. You know, I, I think everybody's craving purpose in what they do. Some jobs are easier to find purpose than others, maybe. Maybe some people don't care, though. Maybe some people are just like, it's a good paycheck. Yeah, it's as, it's as best we can align on these components where we have, again, highest probability of long-term success. That's what matters for the company and for the candidate. And again, personal life changes, all those things you can't control. But the things that you can control, make sure make sure that you've got as tightly aligned uh, a candidate pool, uh, you know, to the to the needs of the job as possible. As I say, like, I mean, that, that's like we think about shift this way. A lot of times you'll hear people say, like, you know, um, you got to do any shift. And it's like, I don't know how many people's lives really truly allow them to do any shift. Right. So this kind of you, you and I've talked about this a little bit. It's like, well, I want to win the job, you know. A lot of times what we'll see is that in a face-to-face interview or in, a, in a, a, an application where there's a binary, true, false, yes, no answer, you know, oh, Noah, can you do any of these three shifts? And I was like, well, if that question's on the application, I'm going to say yes, because I, if I say no, I probably don't get the job. It's like we see this a lot. We see a lot of binary questions. We had a company that had a driving job and they'd say, have you had more than two speeding tickets in the last two years? And every single person, whether or not they had more than two speeding tickets said no, because they were smart enough to know that if I say yes, this thing's getting thrown in the garbage. So if I say no, maybe, maybe it works out and nobody checks or, you know, and so in the same way, can you do every shift? Yes, I can do every shift. And instead we say, well, Let's ask that a little bit differently. If we had six shifts and we were gonna we were gonna change which shifts you were on on a regular basis, which of these shifts could you do uh, and at which frequency? So you'd say, well, I could often do night shift. Uh, rarely could I do day shift. I got kids in middle school. I, I can't I can't do that. I can't drop them off and pick them up, right? I mean, if you needed to and you called me up, maybe I could do it. So you frame it in a way where you're where you're going to get a more honest answer out of people. That makes so much sense. Um, what's your opinion of of in person interviews? In person interviews can be productive if you have a really well defined framework of how you are going to ask questions and what what specifically you are looking to get an understanding of. Right. So kind of along the lines of the questions that we ask. Right. Like if I want to know just if we jive, I don't. I don't know that I have to be best friends with everybody I work with if we just are agreeing that we work together to get a certain job accomplished, right? I mean, in some cases, you know, if we're both creative directors on a project, maybe that matters, like that we like to go, you know, eat at the same places and have the same kinds of drinks, maybe. But I think it's really important that you don't accidentally backslide into your you know, kind of preconceived biases. And, 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 and again, I'm not talking about just racial and socioeconomic bias. I'm talking about our bias towards somebody who's quiet, right? And we're like, oh man, I'm outgoing and I'm loud. And like, I don't know. I interviewed Lily and she was so meek and quiet. You know, I don't know. It's like, well, I don't know. Does the job require you to be outspoken and really talkative? Because I don't, you know, 
a lot of times we make these judgments that may or may not have anything to do with performance in the job. And I think that, again, as long as what you're trying to get to is related to the actual experience and nature of the work and long-term success, then have at it, right? Um, Like your ability to, let's say it's a sales job and your ability to think on the fly is really important. That's something we might not be able to flush out in any easy way other than, you know, in a conversation to try to push on you to think on the fly. Then yes, by all means, I think that's a great model. But if if I want to see if I like you and I think you passed the sniff test and I haven't really understood myself, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about what is success here. I think you run a big risk of accidentally, you know, pruning somebody who, who otherwise would have been a great fit. I know. And it's so tempting um, to feel like it's important to meet somebody. I, I mentioned to you about this Malcolm Gladwell book about talking to strangers it's all about how people draw conclusions, and they are often totally wrong. They talk in the book about um, Neville Chamberlain uh, being invited to Hitler's summer home or winter home. And afterward, he's like, you know, I can work with this guy. And you think because you've met somebody and you've had a good conversation that you can work with them. Your, dra- your NFL draft brings me to um, this other book I listened to. Um, you know who Daryl Morey is? He's the, the GM of Philadelphia. He used to be in Houston. He's sort of like the money ball of basketball. And he talked about interviewing candidates before the draft. And he said, there are so many big men who come in and they just tell you the most inspirational sob story about how they came up from nothing and, you know... It says it's it's so easy to be seduced by people. Yeah, to like them. Yeah. I, one thing you told me while we were in conversation before, just to kind of skip around, you said that sometimes people will skip over somebody for an interview just because they couldn't pronounce their name. Yeah. I know we're totally going to another subject, but I thought that was so interesting. So there's a couple of great researchers from the University of Chicago who have done this study now, I believe in, I think two or three times where they've taken the same resume and they've just changed the name on the top to names that were perceived to be of different racial backgrounds or genders. Right. And they find that Anglo-Saxon male names get the most interviews every time. Unbelievable. And we've seen that too. So we've seen, uh, we've played around a little bit with, uh, with masking candidates. So we'll do as well. We've done this a couple of different ways. We've just provided resumes and masked the resumes to say, we can't see the candidate's name or you can't see the candidate's name. How does that affect things? We've put them in rank order where you can or can't see the candidate's names before you make an interview decision. And you do see sometimes this bias appear. And what's really fascinating to us was when you see it in the data, you immediately have these concerns that the person on the other end might be a bigot, you know? And, And oftentimes what's been interesting for us is that this type of bias has not been associated with as overt, uh, kind of like a a overt bigotry as we would think. A lot of times this uh, became a systemic, it's a transactional problem, right? So it's like, I've got a hundred resumes to go through and they all look the same to me. And I got this one and the name on it, I can't pronounce. And And it doesn't look any better or worse than the other hundred resumes I have. But if I call this person, I have to have an awkward conversation because I don't know how to pronounce their name. 
Unbelievable. And so I'm lower, lower probability of picking it. And we, we could see that we could increase the probability that you make the phone call by identifying and flagging that this person is a five-star match to your job. Oh my gosh, no, this person is great. And then it forces you to say, am I not going to call them because of their name? They're my best match. They're my best candidate. The highest probability of long-term success is right here. And that's been fun to see how that plays out. It sounds like Freakonomics, you know, the whole thing about the names. Yeah, and it pushes it pushes on people. Like there have been, we've played, we've done lots of A-B testing where we had this one manufacturer and we uh, we turned off, we just, just worked with the CHRO and we masked the names of the companies you used to work for and we masked the dates of employment. So instead of showing you that Noah worked for company A from you know, June 2017 to May of 2020, right? We just said, oh, you worked there for two years, whatever, six months, whatever that, whatever the, the, the time period is, right? And instead of telling you that you worked for DT Energy, we said, oh, you work for company A. And, and we told you the role. We said, oh, he was a production line supervisor for company A for three years, six months, right? And it blew us away that we would give you all this information. We'd say, oh, Noah likes this. He doesn't like this. And this is why he's a fit. And in some cases, people were so uncomfortable. They said, well, how do I know if he's any good? I don't even know who he used to work for. And I said, well, I don't really know how, that has, how that's, uh, that's a factor. We know that he was uh, this job for you know, X number of years. He's got lots of experience. He said, well, what if he's been out of work for three months? That probably indicates he's lazy. <laughs> I said, or he had a kid, or he moved, or he had a parent that was ill, or he did such a great job at his last job that he got a bonus and he decided to go travel. I say, like, you know, these these preconceived notions that we have of what is a good or bad fit, without the underlying data to support that assumption, right? And it's oftentimes transactional. We just say, I got a lot of people. They all look the same to me. So I need some mental framework that I can use to rule people in or out so I can make a decision because otherwise, what do I do? True. And paradox of choice. Yeah. What do I do? I got to make some decision. And so your software will help narrow it down. And then also people from your company will work hands-on and consult the company as well. So it's a, it's a double. Yeah. And we do it all as one as one offering. So we just provide the software and then provide the consulting as part of that to ensure that this aligns with their needs and we're continuously tweaking, right? So let's say that we have a couple of people who wash out or a couple of people who are rock stars. We'll go back in as we look at that data and say, okay, okay, what is it about Noah and Robert that you, that gosh, to the supervisor, you just think is spectacular? Is there something else we could add to the questions on the front end to help us hone in on more Noah and Roberts or, oh my gosh, you know, Ellen and Randy, they were a disaster. So is there something like what made him a disaster? We figure that question out. We say, okay, let's put that in and let's see how the data shakes out. Let's continue to tune this. At the end of the day, we want to reduce turnover. We want to speed this process up and we want to become more proactive, right? So if we can just maintain a candidate pool where we can, on a, on a rolling basis, we can optimize, right? And I think, you know, I talked about this briefly. It's like, you know, we all think that the lottery is a high risk game, Right. The, the probability that you're going to win the mega millions is very low. And if you take a company where, say, maybe you have a manufacturing plan, they have 450 applicants and six job openings. The different number of combinations that you can apply those people into, so you can fill 450 people into 11 trillion possible, possible combinations. 
11 trillion, if they all said, oh, I'll take all six, any of the six? Yeah, let's just say we had six openings on six different shifts, or we had one shift in six different pieces of equipment, and they were all production line assistants, right? And we say, oh, I got 450 people I could put in my factory. Well, great. Which of those 450 people do you, you fill? We, we, we think it's an easy problem. So it's really complex. And again, the, the, that's the thing that we can do a better job with computers. We, we have to spend time really with people analyzing the nature of the work and the people and really understand what should go into those inputs for the computer. But at the end of the day, the computer can run that and say, okay, if I want to optimize and figure out the best probability, yes, Noah could go on job A or job D, but Brian only can go on job D. So therefore put Noah on job A, right? That kind of horse trading is impossible for the human brain to do at those numbers. And your and 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 your software can do that. That's what computers are good at. Computers are good at large scale computations, right? And so that's where that's where it's been fun to kind of play with this. It's it's the best of both worlds. It's in an odd way you're using a computer and data to humanize the work, right? So you're saying, look, we really have to care about the person and what they're going to be doing. And the best way we can do that is to use this information to ensure that we get the right person in the right seat for both them and for the company. Fascinating. Okay. So for companies, you know, people listening to this, watching this, they're machining companies often. People who aren't using your software system yet, do you have any advice for them for their hiring process? I think my best advice is to really think about the nature of the work and not in the, the trappings of a job description. What is it, again, about this job? Like, what are the expectations? What are the characteristics of the work from a, a physicality perspective, from a, a mentality, you know, from a, a timing, you know, a mobility, a interaction with other people? Like, once you really understand that and think about that, you are then able to build a better framework in your mind for what an ideal candidate looks like for that job. And you're, you're going to increase your hit rate. And again, it's not about perfection. It's about increasing probabilities for both parties. And I think that that's, it's to take a beat. It's just to take a, it's to take a pause and to say like, just to, just to, to dissect that. And, and, you know, instead of it being some flowery job description, I don't, I mean, I think those things matter, but they matter like an advertisement, right? They matter in getting people to apply. Yes. But, but there, but I think more important than that is to be, is, is that honesty about what, what is the nature of the work, right? It's like, I'm sure we could look at a, a garbage person job description it might be very flowery, but it's like at the end of the day, like if you can identify and hit on those characteristics that are really, you know, that are, you, you know, unique to the job, but, but are, 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 you know, a value to somebody in the job, or maybe even a detractor to the job, you're, yeah, putting those things out front is going to help you because if I apply to a job and, and you've got to think about from the applicant's perspective, so many times we've been into factories or we've been into environments where somebody says, yeah, I want to be a, I want to be a software developer at company A. And in their mind, they think they know what that is. The company knows what that looks like on a daily basis, right? Like I would take this, I, I studied aerospace engineering, right? And in my mind, when I was a high schooler going into aerospace engineering, I thought, I want to design airplanes. And then I actually went and shadowed people who were aerospace engineers. Like, nobody at that place is designing an airplane. Like, not in the way that I envisioned as a kid, you know, with some, you know, some vellum and a pencil and I'm designing the aerodynamics. How Howard Hughes and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, Howard Hughes is probably the last and only person. I mean, there's a couple other people who've done it that way. But most people 
are, you know, they're like working on a bolt or they're working on a piece, you know? And um, so my vision of what it would be like to work at a Boeing or uh, a, a company of that sort and what the day-to-day -day experiences are very different. And if we allow both parties to, you know, make an arrangement for a deal and both parties are not on the same page, it is bad for both parties. And what oftentimes we'll do is we'll put out a job description and we'll say, oh yeah, it's a manufacturing job. We're going to get people who know manufacturing. It's like, wait, there's lots of types of manufacturing. Working in a tool and die shop could be slow paced, but like every part is different, right? It could be, you know, th that's a type of manufacturing. It could be a type of manufacturing where you have a really fast, you know, 20 second tack time and everything is, every tool is, you know, assisted, right? So that there's ergonomic assistance. Like that's a type of job. And those are not the same job. They're not the same job. They're not for the same person. They're barely related to each other, other than like the output is that you have assembled something or you've you've created something. And so again, my advice would be to spend a little bit more time. And, and if you are going to write a job description, the more forward you can be with some of that stuff, or at least even if you don't put it in the job description, so people aren't you know, aiming at it, at least in your interviews or your selection process, whatever you're doing, to do a better job of having that framework. And if you have that framework, you will inherently improve your hit rate. You know, as we started with, every, everybody's preoccupied with finding good people right now. It seems like there's a, a shortage of people right now. Is there anything you guys are doing about that? Is this shortage for real? What is your take on uh, our shortage of skilled people for all across the board? In our client base, we've seen it as more waste than that there's a shortage, right? It, it is a... And, and your client base is mainly manufacturing or it's all across the board? No, we have... It's across the board. And and so it's a, it's a lot of candidate waste, right? So it doesn't matter... Uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a CEO standing out there saying, there's not enough, you know, software developers in, in Chicago. We need more software developers. And it's like, we, we look at that and say, well, you know you had 4,000 apply to your jobs last month, but nobody saw all 4,000. They saw 30 because they had, you know, everybody's job was so siloed, right? Or you'd say, well, I just am not getting enough candidates in my plant. You know, I need more candidates applying to my plant. And sometimes it's the case. Like sometimes we will see a rural plant that, that you know, it's just, there's just not a population in the area, you know, but, but oftentimes, Kind of more often than not, we'll see that they have the candidate access. They're just burning that that pool, right? So it's like we saw a candidate apply to a customer, and we were on site observing, and uh, they had like a little they had a hiring event. They had seventy people show up to the hiring event, and we were talking to one of the executives, and they started this presentation. They said, you know, here at Company X, we're doing you know X, Y, and Z, and this is what we hope you would come do with us on these shifts. And this woman got up and she just left. And uh, chased her down. I was like, you know, we were like 10 seconds into this presentation. Like what, just curious as to what it is that, that offended you. And she said, oh, I, I've worked, I have you know, 12 years of tenure uh, in a union shop, but my kids are in middle school and I desperately need first shift. And I don't, the place I'm at, the, even having 12 years, I can't move to first shift. I don't, I don't have enough seniority. She's like, I was hoping for a first shift job. And I had all the data and I knew that there were no first shift jobs available that week, but that there was a high probability that a week later we were going to have four or five openings, right? And so again, we lose her because she leaves because there's no first shift that week. 
And then a week later, we're going to be sitting in a room and somebody say, God, it's just not enough people applying for these jobs, right? And it's like, oh, just two ships passing in the night. And I feel like that, that is too frequently the case where we have access to these candidates, but for one of these reasons, we miss them. It's not to say that, like, again, the workforce is, is growing by, like, like they said, over the next 10 years, 0.2% a year, and the demand is growing by, like, 5%. So there is certainly going to be increased competition and stress on the market. But the average company cannot deal with the macroeconomics. What they can deal with is winning the war for talent that they have access to. So if you see those people, you have to get the right people in the right seat as quickly as possible. That, that's the part that you can and, and is money the best way to get the right people in the seat? I, I, I think money would be something maybe just off the bat to make people interested, but maybe not the way to retain people. We've seen the data on all sides, right? So again, certainly you know, the more you offer, the more candidate interest you have out of the gate. But to your point, if it's misaligned, it's misaligned. You know, an extra 25 cents an hour, I might hang out for a while and then I'm hopping, right? So it's like, if I if I like my job and I like where I'm at and it fits my life and it fits the kind of work I like, and it's like, yeah, but you could go do this other thing that you think is miserable for an extra 25 cents an hour. I'm not saying that you wouldn't do it. Your life circumstances may require that you do it. But again, lower probability. So I don't see it as just a complete arms race for the most amount of cash. It's about right people, right seats, right? I mean, we all work with people who could make more money somewhere else, but it's not a constant clawing for the next you know, small amount of money, if you're satisfied. Do you see certain candidates? I mean, if people aren't a good match, you'll tell them. Do you see some people and you your software identifies them as, well, this is an entrepreneur. This person shouldn't work for anybody or isn't a good fit to be an employee working for somebody. And do you tell those people? I don't think we've ever looked at it in that way. We've only looked at it as they align to a particular segment they've identified, right? So it's, I don't know that we've, we've not gone on the career counseling side, more on the, you know, from the company's perspective, who do they want to hire of this pool? Not, you know, from a candidate counseling perspective. Do you have any, anything else to say to the people of the world? I just, I appreciate the time today and, I really appreciate the conversation. It was a great conversation. If somebody wants to find out more, they should just Google Talent EI. Yeah, talentei.com. Uh, or you can email info at talentei.com. And uh, I'm sure one of my team members would be happy to connect and see if we, uh, we can help you. Awesome. Thank you. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com.